I know. Yes? I'm excited. Do you know why I'm excited? Uh, you are never excited, but please tell me why <laughs> are you so excited today? The planets are coming. The planets are coming. Yes. Wow, that is really to be excited. There are starting to be planets in the sky and I'm so, so excited to start looking at them through the telescopes. Yeah, amazing all these planets. So eager to observe them all. Hi, I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Hi everyone and welcome to episode seven, seven. of the Scientist. Seven. Seven. Lucky number seven. Yep. If we're superstitious, but oh. we're astronomers, so we are not. It is just an extra number. Very nice number, but very nice number. Yes, nice prime. The fourth prime. One. one it depends. One, one, two, three, one, five, two, three, five, seven. Five, the fifth prime. Yep. There we go. Numbers. Numbers are fun. Always. Always. Yes, well, welcome to episode seven. Let's start off with feedback, of course. Last episode, we sent out a poll on Twitter about the Hubble sequence. How did we go, Angel? So that was actually the poll that we originally thought, starting in episode five, in our episode Trillions of Galaxies, mm -hmm. that we were talking about galaxies and uh, the classification of a spiral and elliptical galaxies, the majority of the galaxies out there. But there is also this convention of uh, naming early type galaxies and late type galaxies elliptical and spiral and somewhat confusing. Sometimes. It sure is confusing. And that is why we started this poll suggesting, hey, perhaps we should be moving away from calling early type and late type and just stick to spiral and elliptical. I mean, shapes are a lot nicer than time. Anyway, you can actually visualize shapes other than you can't really visualize time. Yeah, well, that is completely true. But that is, again, the idea that we were talking about of the kind of evolution of the Hubble Dunning Fork, mm. which it is something that we have been receiving the feedback about. Yes. So that is important. In any case, in that poll, let me first mention this. In the poll, we were asking all our listeners to please provide the feedback. What are you thinking about keeping the name of early time or left type or just using spiral analyticals? Mm. But um, we also included a subcategory saying, are you an astronomer or are you not an astronomer? I think it's a good idea. We have a, a two variable table thing yes. going. And we have that, although it is in the same poll because mm -hmm. we have the four options, but yep. you have to choose are you an astronomer, yes or not, and then you agree with changing or keeping the early type or and late type or just going to a spiral analytical. In any case, thank you very much for all the followers and persons that have voted in this poll. Yes. Very, very interesting. Thank and you for providing your feedback. Yeah, that <laughs> is always good. But the results are basically the same. Right. Because 69% of all people who said they are astronomers and 73% of non-astronomers, which basically the same number, mm -hmm. 79, 73, they all agreed of just saying a spiral and elliptical. Yay! Yuppie! So Finally, that, we that have is, clarity. <laughs> we have some clarity from that. Although with the number of people who answered the poll, we don't have a representative number. So that is not a statistically 
important. Mm, damn. <laughs> Perhaps in a year time when we are getting the millions of followers, of course. <laughs> we can repeat the experiment and let's see if we get a bit more conclusive results. We don't shy away from optimism here. <laughs> no, never, never. You be planets are coming. <laughs> But beside that, we also have some few very interesting comments from there. Yes, I saw a comment of someone saying that you can use both terms and I got really confused when I read that message. That is a message from my friend Ana Hidalgo Gámez from Mexico. She's an astrophysicist and she very clearly said all irregular galaxies are classified as late type galaxies mm -hmm. because of definition basically. All elliptical galaxies are always early type galaxies which is something that we have said but the tricky part it is the spirals. Right. Because spirals, still, there is some kind of convention there in which you can define an early type spiral and a late type spiral. Oh, okay. Does it fit within the early and late part of the tuning fork? Uh, not really. In the tuning fork of Howell, it will be in the right-hand side. For the late type. For the late type. Yeah. But it is more how you consider the structure of the bulge. Okay and how elongated the spiral arms are. Basically, the main idea, although that definition is also not completely fixed, but the main thing it is that when you have a very clear bulge in a spiral galaxy, mm. you can define that as a early type spiral galaxy. Okay. Which still, it confuses me. <laughs> I don't know, we can have another different name. So it seems it is just because the bulge in a spiral galaxy is somewhat similar to what we should expect finding in an elliptical galaxy. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the stars move in a very similar way in the bulge of the spiral galaxy as they do in an elliptical galaxy, right? Uh, no, completely. It is, it is much more difficult than that because, <laughs> as usual, that is the idea, the convention, the whatever. And then when you go into the details mm -hmm. and you go and observe galaxies, for example, using this technique that we have said before some few times, integral field spectroscopy, which is the kind of observation that I was conducting with the AET a couple of weeks ago, and that is why I was so sleepy and whatever. <laughs> it's, it's providing a great view of galaxies because we are dissecting galaxies, getting at the same time images and spectra of the majority of the regions and so on. Well, when we are applying that to standard elliptical galaxies, we are finding sometimes that they are rotating fast as a spiral galaxy. Oh. And that was very confusing. It was very confusing. A decade ago, when we were starting to find this, it was very confusing. And on the same way, when you are observing spiral galaxies, Sometimes you're finding that the bulge, the, the internal areas, are rotating in a similar way to what we expect in elliptical galaxies. Hmm. So Astronomy's done it again. They've confused us again. It is just confusion. And there are very clever astronomers out there trying to really clarify all the shapes of galaxies, mm -hmm. spiral and elliptical, and how the stars are really moving around galaxies. So it is not as easy as it seems. Who said astrophysics was easy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> But that is always good because that means more challenges for us. That's right. I do love to learn. Yeah, and, and that is the way we learn. And that is the, the way we evolve in our knowledge of the universe and our understanding of the cosmos. Yes, exactly right. But beside that, we got another very good feedback from another colleague of mine, Brad Gibson, who pointed out a very interesting point that I didn't know. 
but I think it will be important to comment on that. In the original paper by Hubble in 1927, he said this. The entire classification is purely empirical without prejudice to theories of evolution. Okay. Meaning that Hubble did not believe that the Tony Fork had anything to do with evolution. Ooh, spicy. So that also means that if you go and explore all these papers, and there was also a follow-up comment by Ian Cordon, in the literature, in the last few decades, it had been this convention that we were discussing before about classifying elliptical galaxies as early type and spiral galaxies as late type and mm. so on. But Hubble himself didn't introduce that. Mm. So the terms early type and late type, they were already there, yeah. but he never believed in that kind of evolution. It was something that he was made up in some way later. Oh, there you go. Ian Gordon... He recommended to have a look to a very interesting short paper in Astronomy and Geophysics 2008 by Ivan Baldry, another college of mine, by the way, <laughs> working in the, in the Gamma project. And he was trying to explain all of this in some few details. So Hubble's galaxy nomenclature and how all this was changing. He, for example, emphasized Hubble 1927. The nomenclature, it is emphasized refers to position in the sequence and temporal connotation and may at once vary. So I will recommend to have a look to the link. We have already retweeted the link to this paper, but insisting that Hubble was strictly neutral on evolution. Hmm. There you go. He was just sitting on the fence. In the paper, some few of the very famous textbooks are mentioned. For example, Binney and Merrifield, 1998, which mm. is a very classic textbook about galaxies in astronomy. Hubble suggested that galaxies evolved from the left-hand end of this sequence to the right. This now discredited speculation lived on in the convention early type, late type galaxies. So it was kind of just added on. Yeah, it was in some way added on. But I'm very happy, really, I'm very happy because thanks to doing this podcast, I'm learning too. Well, we've learned something. We are, this we, is we great. Learning. So we are getting, uh, that is what we wanted. We wanted the feedback from our listeners and followers just to, to get a better understanding of the cosmos. I didn't know about that. Exactly. If we're ever wrong, please do correct us. Yes. Yes, please. Please, please. Because we are never, never going to be 100% accurate. There are always some things that we might explain not completely right mm -hmm. or because or we misunderstood the, the explanation or because we are not able to get this kind of way of explaining in an easy way the facts. So, yeah, let's go for it. Exactly. Um, well, that was, a, that was a long feedback session, but it was good. We had a great discussion. But now it's time for What's Up? And this is why I'm very excited today. Uh, and I can see her eyes just twinkling. La, la, la. Planets. Planets. <laughs> twinkling unlike planets that don't twinkle. Ooh. Twinkle, twinkle. Little planet. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my son loves that song. <laughs> Our what's up for this episode is all about Jupiter. 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 I've been seeing a little, well, not so little Jupiter rise outside my bedroom window for the last couple of nights. And I've been getting very excited for it to be up high during tour time at Sydney Observatory so I can see things like the red spot and the clouds and everything and the moons. I'm just so excited. Yeah, so excited. Yes, because it is an amazing planet. Definitely for me, it is my favorite planet. Plus, who doesn't love planets? Every single time I have a tour, someone's like, oh, can we see a planet? In the last couple of months, I was like, no, Sorry, no. we can't. Well, 
Uh, it was Uranus around there, but it's sometimes so yeah. and Neptune too. But it was so. Uh, it's you know. so underwhelming. I mean, nothing against Uranus and Neptune. No, they are great planets. They're just so far away. We can't see in detail. They just look like little pale green and blue dots. And and that is the same with Mars. I have to say, sorry, <laughs> because it Mars is very famous. Let's go to observe Mars. Oh, there it is, Mars. Mars opposition. Way great, great. Uh, still. When it is not in opposition, Mars is tiny. Yes, that and is it's very true. Very difficult to see anything. But when it is in opposition, it's amazing. It is amazing too, of course. But by default, if you have Jupiter or Saturn, they mm. are much more spectacular planets in in any moment that you are observing them. It doesn't matter the moment of the year. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So in Jupiter, you are going to be able to see very clearly with a small telescope the bands, the zones. The satellites. Mm-hmm. When in Saturn, you are going to observe the rings and yes. some few of the satellites. Titan. Wow! It is awesome. So awesome. So, what better than to use that WhatsApp for Jupiter? So, when you can see it. So, from Sydney time, it will be rising from about 9 p.m. these days. But but but, but. the times are changing. Literally, because on April 1st, Easter Sunday, we will be going to... We're changing our daylight saving time. Exactly. I'm never sure which one we're changing to. All uh, I know is that we get more nighttime. You are getting more nighttime, meaning that that night we are getting a repetition of the times. We at, gain an extra hour. You gain an, we, we gain an extra hour. Yes, so sleep it will in. Be three will be two again. Yes, but that and, means that from after 1st of April... Jupiter will be rising at 8 p.m. Which is very early, or not, depending how you consider that. <laughs> Please note that Christine is talking in the future, that it will be happen. But actually, for you listeners, that had happened already, because we will release this episode after that April 1st. true. This episode comes out on the 5th of April, so now it's rising at 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> And you will notice, and I was talking to, to Kristen before about this, that it seems that it's coming sooner and sooner and sooner here in the southern hemisphere because the nights are getting longer and longer. And then it seems that the objects in the sky are coming a bit earlier, rising from the east. Mm. It is the other way around in the northern hemisphere. So for our listeners in the northern hemisphere, particularly those in Spain, hola, Please consider that you have also changed to the daily saving time, so mm-hmm. it will be rising a bit later, probably at around 9.30, 10 p.m. for you. Just look to the east, and mm-hmm. then you will see a very bright white pot. That's right. Not twinkling. Not no, twinkling. No blinking. It's just a very bright uh, star, which is not a star. It is Jupiter. Jupiter. And even if you have a small binoculars, have a look to it. Mm. Because you will be able to see the satellites. That's right. The four major moons of Jupiter. Can we name them all? Ganymede, Callisto, Io and Europa. Yep, that's right. The, the Galilean moons. Mm. First observed by Galileo in 1610, which I'm sure we all know. But another thing that would be really cool to see on Jupiter is the Great Red Spot. Yes, definitely. But apparently, it's not going to be so great for very long. Oh, what is happening? 
it's shrinking. Is it shrinking? It's shrinking, yes. It used to be about the size of three Earths, but now it's the size of 1.3 Earths. 1.3? 1.3. Okay, the last time I checked the numbers, and that was perhaps a couple of years ago, mm. it was a bit below two. Mm. Now it's 1.3, which is a bit scary because the Great Red Spot is pretty great. You can see it through our telescopes at Sydney Observatory when it's the right time, of course, when Jupiter, Mm -hmm. the red spot is actually facing towards us and if it's a good clear night as well. But apparently it is shrinking and, of course, this may change, but they currently estimate that it will be completely gone in the next 10 to 20 years. Ooh, and that would be a big change in Jupiter. Mm, I mean, Jupiter will still look fantastic, of no, course. Of course, of course. But the great red spot. Jupiter is known for its great red spot. And have been there since the invention of the telescope, or actually since we have draws. So. They believe so. Galileo first saw it in about 1610, in the 1600s. Um, and then it was next recorded to be observed in the 1800s. It's believed that they could be the same storm. Mm-hmm. But also maybe not. But still, if it the one from 1800 is the same one from now. So it's been around for at least 200 years, if yeah. not 400 years exactly. or more. Exactly. The records when it was first observed with photographs in the late 19th century, it seems that it was very big. Mm. Although the photographs were not very good, or that they didn't have too much quality, but still it was perhaps four or five times the size of the Earth or something like that. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is, it is. So, an extra excuse to go and have a look to Jupiter. Please do it before the Great Red Spot is completely disappearing. Or it's gone. <laughs> yeah. But you know what else is really interesting? Just because I remembered back to about this time last year, I was giving a presentation on the atmospheres on other planets. Uh-huh. And my partner and I, uh, who were doing the presentation together, he looked at Jupiter and I looked at Neptune and stuff, but what he found about Jupiter is apparently, is it is Jupiter too hot? Because apparently Jupiter emits more heat than it receives from the sun. That's completely right. Hmm. Which seems very interesting. Infrared light. That's right. In infrared light. Yes. So apparently the uh, storm-induced turbulence in the lower atmosphere is likely responsible for the heating storms on the surface, like the Great Red Spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still it's not completely clear mm. where is all that radiation coming. And that is actually one of, I think, to remember one of the missions of the Juno spacecraft. Oh. Try to understand exactly from where the infrared radiation that Jupiter is emitting is coming from. Right. What a great segue into the Juno space probe. Yeah, but before going doing <laughs> that, I also wanted to add something else to insist about the properties of the atmosphere of Jupiter. Well, it can be very easily connected with discussion of the results that we are getting from Juno. Mm-hmm. It is very convenient to remember to everyone that Jupiter it is a very different planet to the Earth. Oh, yes. So it is a giant planet made majoritarily of gas, mm-hmm. hydrogen, helium... And then we have also... Some methane uh, methane, and NH3. Ammonia. That's the one, ammonia. A a little bit of water and some few other things. Mm. What we are seeing in Jupiter, it is the external layers of this very thick atmosphere that is composed in these bands and zones. The bands are relatively dark. The Mm. zones are white or so. And it is very dynamic. We have been mentioned 
what is happening to the Great Red Spot. But we have observed many other storms and features in Jupiter atmospheres coming and going that mm. have happened for a lot of time. I wanted to emphasize that it is really a very dynamic atmosphere. I remember in 1994 when a comet collided with Jupiter. Oh, really? Yeah, Schumacher Levy 9. Oh, it was cool. Amazing. Ooh. This comet, we can be talking about that in another moment because it is a long thing itself because <laughs> it was very important. And the reason why at the end we have these great movies like Armageddon or Deep Impact, but <laughs> a, another day. This comet was crossing very nearby Jupiter. It was broken in 29, 30, I don't remember the number of fragments, different fragments. And for a week in July 1994, all the fragments were colliding into Jupiter. Ooh. I created a lot of features that we could see of this collision of small, really small pieces of a comet coming into the giant Jupiter. And at the end, all these black features, black clouds, not clouds, it was just deep in the clouds for the impact they were connecting together for a few months we could see a kind of a black band around jupiter really whoa that it disappeared in just a few months and it was just as normal huh. so we have seen Dynamic structures changes. yeah structures mm. coming and going and it is continually uh, coming and that is also what juno is observing all okay. these kind of features moving coming going some of them seems to be or seems to be really there for a long time, but other the small ones are just completely moving away and disappearing and appearing new ones. So it is very dynamic. Cool. So what more can you tell us about the Juno mission then? Well, the Juno mission, it is actually a small mission from NASA. It was launched in 2011, 5th of August. Really? That long ago? That long ago. It needed almost six years to get to Jupiter. That's right, because it recently arrived to yeah. Jupiter. So it right. arrived on the 4th of July. Oh, how patriotic. Of the 4th of July, 2016. <laughs> and since then, it has been orbiting Jupiter. It was different from other missions in the sense that the main goal of Juno it is to try to understand the magnetic field of Jupiter mm. and also the gravity of Jupiter in order that we can understand better what is the internal structure of the planet. Yeah. And for doing that, Juno have to move very, very, very close to Jupiter. Really, really close. Three, four, five thousand kilometers in the closest approach to wow. the planet. That's pretty close. Yeah, although it is a very elliptical orbit at the moment, so mm -hmm. it's only going very close to Jupiter in this range, some few tens, thousands of kilometers in every 50 days or so. I don't remember the number exactly, but something like that. Mm. That was not the original plan. The original plan was to do a close approach every three weeks, a month. Mm -hmm. But there was some issue with one of the systems of the probe when it was there, and NASA didn't want to risk it. Right. So they decided to keep it in a kind of a bit more secure orbit, mm. just doing it not as often approaches, but still uh, working very well. And on the other hand, what they did was extend the time of the mission. Oh, okay. Be because the main problem of going this close to Jupiter was... All the radiation. All the radiation right. of the intense magnetic fields from Jupiter mm. and so on. Those things don't just... Uh pass through you, those things make a difference. They were very concerned about that. They were not completely sure even if Juno will be able to survive the first 
I guess that's the same with the uh, the Galileo mission as well. That one went a bit too close and they didn't think it would survive, but apparently it did. Yeah, it did, it did. Mm. Yeah, the Galileo spacecraft, that was in Jupiter when? 1995, 1996? Before my time. Yeah, it was something <laughs> like that. Oh, it, it was interesting because this uh, spacecraft in its wave to Jupiter in 1994 was the only object the only spacecraft that was able to observe directly the impacts of the Schumacher-Levy 9 comet into Jupiter. Oh. Because from the Earth, they were just a bit, just, just, just a bit on the other part of the planet. Right. So we couldn't see directly from Earth. We have to wait for, I seem to remember, around 15 to 20 minutes to get the, mm. the rotation of the planet to, to see what was happening. But Galileo, that was around the asteroid belt in that moment, was able to observe that. Perfect. So, Juno have been around Jupiter for that time. It has nine different instruments, very sophisticated instruments, but again, it's providing amazing data of what is happening in Jupiter. Mm. And perhaps one of the main results, it is that all the textbooks trying to explain what is the internal composition of Jupiter, we can put that away, because what we are getting, it is much more confusing and Amazing, that's what we thought. Originally, we thought that Jupiter had a kind of solid core in the center, mm. a remnant, let's say, as a terrestrial planet or so, although it doesn't have anything to do with a terrestrial planet. No. But all the measurements that we are getting from Juno are revealing that this core is a fuzzy core because it is very much mixed mm. with hydrogen and helium, the main components yes. in the atmosphere and in, in Jupiter. So that is a very interesting thing. The other part that was also a discovery that have been published very recently, it is how deep this structure of pans and thorns that we see in the mm. external layers of Jupiter, how deep are they? Okay. Because there were two ideas, two hypotheses. One, that they were just superficial, just in the tiny part of the atmosphere. And another hypothesis that it was something very deep. Mm. And it seems that it is the second one, that these structures are going deeper into Jupiter. Not as deep as Jupiter itself, because it is very big, but it's still at least 2,500 to 3,000 kilometers deep mm -hmm. are these structures. And they can be considered and, and analyzed very well as they were fluid. Yes. Below that, there is a big, massive layer of what we call liquid molecular hydrogen. Or metallic hydrogen? No, that is below that. Oh, that's below that. So oh. it is below that. So Going we too have, fast. We, we have this kind of fluid to 2,500 to 3,000 kilometers deep, with this such a structure that we see in the sternal part of Jupiter. Then we have the liquid molecular hydrogen that is moving as a solid rigid object. Mm. So it's all as it is, not as a fluid. Yes. Which is very interesting. And that was another of the surprises from Juno because from there, this matter is able to have some, some few or many electrons around and a part of the strong magnetosphere that we observe in Jupiter is coming from here and not from below that. That is where the majority of the metallic hydrogen is located. Right. That is where really the, the very strong part of the magnetosphere and the magnetic fields of Jupiter seems to be generated. And below this layer of metallic hydrogen, it is when we are starting to find, not very clearly, and that is why it is called a fuzzy core, the center of the planet. Okay. 
was so, interesting. So that is the way we are starting to draw the interior of Jupiter at the moment and to Juno. I want to insist that is not what we had in textbooks just a year or two years ago. Mm. Juno also has a camera on it, doesn't it? Yes, Juno Cam. Juno Cam. Very, very creative name. Yeah, very good name. Some of the photos from that are absolutely amazing. Oh my goodness. And pe- the things that people do with this raw data and posting these photos on Twitter and everything. Oh, I just want to make all of them my background picture on my phone and my laptop and everything. Right, it is just amazing to have a look to all this material that uh, citizen scientists mm. are producing. And that is a very interesting point also about the mission because JunoCam was installed in Juno just in the last moment. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's like, oh, let's just put a camera on there because why not? Well, I mean, obviously, why not? No, because the main mission of Juno was actually trying to get a better understanding of the magnetosphere and the internal of part of Jupiter, but not taking beautiful images because, uh, you know, sometimes how scientists are, did you take a beautiful image, then it is not as good as getting a raw spectrum uh, with funny features that only you understand. I disagree. Photos are great because then people who don't know about spectra and who don't know about what all of this means can still look at it and appreciate it. I completely agree on that. But that is not my philosophy, what I was mentioned. It was some people, some scientists really think the other way around. Perhaps I'm confused, but it is my my belief sometimes, my, my... the way I see it. In any case, it doesn't matter. The point was that they were clever enough at the end to say, hey, let's, let's to put a camera on this thing. <laughs> let's going to put a camera. And well, and they are now extremely happy. And not only because of the beautiful images that JunoCam is getting and combined by citizen scientists. The, originally, the main project or the main idea of the camera was to take beautiful images and put them freely available to everyone in the internet to have a look and trying to combine them, doing this kind of citizen science project. That was everything. But, but, then they have realized that those images are providing great scientific information. Oh, really? Of course, of course. I mean, there's this great photo of that you can see this, this swirling structure of clouds, just, oh, it's amazing. Well, now just use a model to try to explain that, and that is not that easy. That's very true. That, that is not that easy. That is not that easy. And, and because they are discovering substructure below the main structure that they thought more or less how to explain. And they mm-hmm. now realizing that, oh, how can we do this? How can we do this? I don't know. They've... I'm going to leave that to the uh, computer scientists who can code better than I can. And on the other part was, I'm not sure if I mentioned before that uh, Juno is moving in a polar orbit. It is not around the equator where all the satellites are located. It's moving through the poles. And that's a good idea, though, because then you can get every latitude of the planet. That's right. But again, that was more because they wanted to trace the small variations in gravity induced by internal differences in Jupiter Mm. and also the superstructures in the magnetic field that it is much better to do it in a polar way than through the equator that you more or less in the same latitude, let's say that, you will expect more or less having the same component in some way. Exactly, you sort of expect that. But, yes. if, but if you move in this polar orbit, then you're going to cross very different structures through the structure of the magnetic field, and you're able to trace much better the interior of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. But 
they are getting for free, it is these amazing images of the North Pole and the South Pole of Jupiter. Yes, oh, they look so pretty. And they are, because that is again when we saw those images, say, what? What is happening here? Mm. What is happening here? Because the South Pole has a pentagon of a storm surrounding a center vortex, a center storm. Now that looks very interesting. It's, it, it's kind of on the order of the hexagonal storm on Saturn. But there's still weird stuff happening. Yeah, but, but that, is, that is a thing. So in, there is an hexagon in Saturn that is an hexagon. It is just an hexagon of mm. a structure like an hexagon. In Jupiter, we find a central storm just in the South Pole. Mm -hmm. And surrounding this central storm, there are five smaller storms just following that pattern of a pentagon very nicely. And it is a pentagon in the Southern Pole, but in the Northern Pole, it is an octagon. What? An octagon. So many shapes. Yeah, so many shapes. So we have an hexagon in, in Saturn, an octagon and a pentagon in Jupiter. Explain that to me. I can't. <laughs> that is still trying to. And There's still more to learn. Yeah, always. plenty, plenty. And these storms, which are cyclones, and usually they have a size of three, four thousand kilometers. Okay. So it's a reasonable size. Yeah, yeah. So it will be around each of these storms. It is around a quarter of the size of the Earth. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> not bad for for so for about moon size. Yeah, moon our, our moon size. Our, yeah, our moon size. So mm. ima imagine that. There you go. Well, so many things to look at. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And as I like to say, the mission of Juno is really starting now because it arrived there just less than two years ago. It still has some few more years to go. Mm. And we are still collecting data and refining the models of the interior of Jupiter, of the magnetosphere of Jupiter, and many more things like all these storms, the different structures in the clouds and so on. So for sure, Juno will provide many more surprises very soon. I'm very excited. So, so many reasons for us to look at Jupiter right now as it's rising for our evenings. Why wouldn't you want to look at Jupiter? I think we chose a very good thing, astronomical object, for our WhatsApp section. Yes, it is. Mm. I think we've gone on for a little too long today. I think we are. Um, <laughs> we just get so excited about these things. That's okay. <laughs> we talk, we talk, usually. We do. So how about for feedback for this episode, tell us your favourite thing about Jupiter or even Saturn or even any of the planets. What's your favourite thing about one of the planets? Let us know and we'll talk about it next episode. Mm -hmm. And we have more feedback to come about what you think about the spiral and ellipticals. We can be talking a bit more if we would receive any more feedback about this topic. And uh, eventually we should be preparing that episode about the star clusters. Yes, indeed. And don't forget, we are on Twitter and Facebook at The Skyantists and you can email us questions as well. Don't forget, we do love questions. You can email us questions at theskyantists at gmail.com. Okay, well, I think that is all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and talk to you very soon. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye-bye.
more planets. And these are the planets of our solar system. One day there will be exoplanets too. Yay. <laughs> yuppie, yuppie, yay, yay. Are we going to keep this? Why not? <laughs>